Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. Football is back. We've got Bills and Rams, Bucks and Cowboys, Chiefs and Cardinals, all of the NFL action coming up for week one. Use our promo code BLEAVE50, that's B-L-E-A-V-5-0, to get a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online where the game starts. afternoon or good night however and whenever it is you may be listening thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the take it easy podcast live on the Believe Podcast Network, except it isn't live because it is a podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome everybody. It is September 8th according to my count. May not be that according to your count, but we appreciate you stopping in. However, and whenever it is, you may be listening. Welcome to NFL Kickoff Day 2022 ladies and gentlemen this one snuck up on me a little bit but I guess the NFL is about to start for 2022 I am trying to maintain a healthy perspective in my life going into football season 2022 but we made it folks football has arrived I hope you are all excited I hope you are all standing up on the tables and shouting from the rooftops because NFL football has returned it's Buffalo and the Rams, the first game of the season. NFL does this well, where they put games of the year on the opening night game. I assume Friday's podcast will be a post-game reacting to the first game of the season between the Bills and the Rams. We will talk about all of that, and we will follow whatever happens in that game. And since it is the Los Angeles Rams, we are obligated to play the wonderful Los Angeles Rams intro music with which we kick off every single Los Angeles Rams-based podcast. As you also heard yesterday on the Take It Easy musical album, you can download that and listen to all the great songs and bits and parodies that we've done over the years, all collected together into one musical album. You can check that out as well wherever you get podcasts and enjoy the musical stylings of myself in podcast form. But it is a Los Angeles Rams game. It is a Buffalo Bills game. It's the Von Miller game, which means we'll play the Von Miller song too at some point here. But, 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 in order to kick off the 2022 NFL season, we have to go back to where we were six months ago, and we need to ram it just right. Ram it all day and ram it all night.
got Jackie and I'm starting this off. The Rams get down so nobody scores. And don't you worry, cause the Rams are rapping. When game time comes, we'll be back to that. We can't sing and our dance is not pretty. But we'll do our best for the team and the city. So get on your feet and clap your hands. Let's ram it right now with the L.A. Rams. Hollywood handsome, Dodge City tough. If you throw it my way, it's gonna get rough. I like to ram it, as you can see. Nobody likes ramming any more than me. They call me Jeter. Nobody dresses sweeter. But under this cool is a quarterback mistreater. I come from the air, looking for the sack. I don't stop coming till I put them on their back. I'm a mountain man from West VA. They call me Herc and I came to play. I learned long ago to ram it just right. You can ram it all day and ram it all night. Yeah, yeah, the defending Super Bowl champions are underdogs at home on opening night against the Buffalo Bills, who people say has the best roster in the NFL, and the Los Angeles Rams still bring back three of the 12 best players in the NFL, or at least like three of the 20 players who we think actually add a significant amount of game-changing value to the NFL. They got Aaron Donald, Jalen Ramsey, Cooper Cup. And Matthew Stafford battling through a whole hell of a lot of injuries that might derail their season from the very beginning. Uh, If you go back to August 23rd, I did a a 25-minute segment about the Los Angeles Rams. And I'm tempted to copy and paste it here on this podcast to replicate the beginning of the Los Angeles Rams season. But I don't really do copy and paste here on the podcast, even though the option is available to me. Maybe I should do more copy and paste stuff, but uh, August 23rd's podcast, if you want a a full LA Rams breakdown, I don't feel like repeating what I was talking about with the Rams then, because that was basically like a Rams preview, and and trying to figure out why it was that the Rams, who obviously their quarterback is their fifth best player on the team instead of their best player, uh, why the Rams aren't considered to be a team that we perennially think of as a repeater to make it back to where they were, similar to how we talk about the Buffalo Bills because the Buffalo Bills are a team now that we just pencil in to the AFC championship game similar to what we used to do with the New England Patriots and I'm interested in that from a Buffalo standpoint I'm sure you'll hear me mention it all throughout the NFL season this year because there's not a whole lot of evidence to move the needle on Buffalo Uh, because regular season games for Buffalo don't really matter this year the entire goal of the regular season for Buffalo is to get as healthy as possible and to get ready to game plan for the three to four playoff games in September. And that's the same space that Kansas City was in back in 2020, and they were in towards the back end of 2021. I, I, I know that people panicked at the start of the season about the Chiefs, but the Chiefs, with what people were saying, was the hardest schedule in the NFL towards the end of the season. Kansas City was going 7-1, and 8-1 and one to finish the season. They were winning by 20 points a game. They were literally unbeatable, like they always are at the back end of the season. And Kansas City just whooped ass on teams that people were like, oh, you better watch out for the Raiders or watch out for the Chargers. Or Chargers actually put up a good fight. You better watch out for them. Watch out for the Broncos. Watch out for, I think it was like uh, Dallas they played at one point or Green Bay, but I think Jordan Love started that game. But basically everyone was like, toughest schedule in the league. Kansas City kicked ass on everyone because the regular season does not matter for Kansas City. This year it does because Kansas City has an entirely new team on offense when you take away Tyree Kill, you bring in Sky Moore, you bring in Juju Smith-Schuster. This year doesn't apply to the Chiefs because the Chiefs are a great unknown. I think the Chiefs might lose in the second round of the playoffs, but it's Kansas City. I'm betting on Mahomes, betting on Andy Reid that they'll win the division. And Buffalo has now assumed that space where we know Buffalo is going to win the AFC East. Whether they're the one, the two, the three seed, it's kind of irrelevant 
to Buffalo. Sure, they'd like the bye. It's just not necessary for Buffalo because they will use week 18 as the bye week this year. They will win that division. They might have to play a road playoff game, but I think that road playoff game to them is less important than everyone healthy. A six-point swing in your playoff game because you're playing on the road is less important to them than getting every single star player healthy because a single important player on that team going down swings the fortunes of your team about six points. So they value, I assume they will value the health and ability to game plan in the playoffs above the the regular season record. And and as they should, I would believe, like the, the home playoff game versus road playoff game thing is certainly overblown, especially for a team as talented as Buffalo. Uh, the NBA has proven this. The past three years of NFL playoffs have proven this. And I'm interested in how Buffalo goes about this season. Because you may remember last year, and I'm fascinated by this, the Buffalo Bills in December had Devin Singletary carry the ball more times in the last four games of the season than all but like two running backs in the NFL. And I thought that was an interesting strategy because it seemed like Buffalo was moving towards a strategy of running the football, really trying to emphasize Devin Singletary. Because I still attest, even though James Cook is now drafted, he was a third round pick, Buffalo has the worst running game of any playoff team in the NFL. It might be the worst running, because a lot of teams that miss the playoffs have good running games. It might be one of the, like, besides the tanking teams in the NFL, Buffalo might have the worst running game in the entire NFL. And Buffalo's solution to this is what they did in the playoffs against Kansas City and what they did partially against the Patriots, but they didn't need to because the Patriots didn't stop them a single time in that playoff game. They scored, what, six touchdowns on six possessions against the Patriots' defense. And... Buffalo in that game against Kansas City had Josh Allen as as quarterback one and Josh Allen as running back one. Josh Allen had the most carries on the team with 12 and most rushing yards with 51. Devin Singletary in that playoff game had three carries for like 20 yards and I walked out of that game and I'm like, oh, Devin Singletary's never going to step on a Buffalo Bills jersey again. And Devin Singletary is back this year. Like he's still on the team. Matt Breida is, is I believe, a Buffalo Bill this year. And they have uh, still Zach Moss, and uh, or maybe Zach Moss got cut, but they still have James Cook. Uh, I th- is Matt. Bre- I'm pretty sure Matt Breed is a Buffalo Bill, but still, like the Buffalo Bills are in this weird place where Josh Allen is the number one, and they can't use him during the regular season. In the playoffs, they will have Josh Allen run the ball the way like the the 49ers scheme Debo Samuel in the running game. Uh, but uh, Matt Breida got cut by Buffalo, so he's not on the team. But basically, Buffalo is Devin Singletary, James Cook, Zach Moss, the exact same shitty running game they've had the last few years. But in the playoffs, Josh Allen becomes running back one. And against Kansas City and against Green Bay and probably against the Rams, although depending on how they scheme, Josh Allen is running back one on that football team. And I said they should have given up like a first or a second or multiple picks or a player and a pick to get... Uh, like Dalvin Cook or just try and get a a solid running back it doesn't have to be great it just has to be not the worst running game in the NFL for the Buffalo Bills and I thought it could be an old guy too like just not the worst running back room of any team not tanking in the NFL and that's hard to do considering Buffalo still has a pretty good offensive line like they have an above average offensive line and they still have a shitty running game because they just have no good running backs and uh, Josh Allen is their running back one, but they can't use Josh Allen in the regular season because they are protecting his body. 
And so Buffalo can play an entirely different game during the regular season, get to the playoffs, and their strategy changes. And so because the lasting image I have of Buffalo is offense is totally overwhelming. Okay, we have two years of Josh Allen being elite quarterback, one of the three best in the league. We Josh Allen is this person now. It's not like 2020 was a fluke. It's not like 2021 was a fluke or a regression, although he played worse. It was impossible for him to play as well as he did in 2020. Like Josh Allen is this guy. He is this elite quarterback. We know Josh Allen is the best is the top 3 best quarterback in all of the NFL. We have a large enough sample size. We know this is who he is. We know he's in the prime of his physical career and Josh Allen is giving is puts Buffalo as the number 1 team projected coming out of the AFC. I know they have a talented roster around it. It is because of the elite quarterback having one of the three best players in football where they're doing like celebrity golf with him and Patrick Mahomes against Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady. Like Josh Allen is that dude who we know is an elite quarterback. And because of that, they, the entire goal of the season is to protect him and to protect the supporting cast in the regular season. And so because I know how much Buffalo's strategy changed in November and December of last year, and I saw what happened in that Chiefs playoff game with both the running game and the fact that like Gabriel Davis had four touchdowns, and Stephon Diggs last year had a regression season but still had 1,000 yards and eight touchdowns. Like Because we've seen this team play enough and we know what a machine this Buffalo offense is, I'm interested to see what they choose to do in the regular season in order to obviously score points, but they can score points with anyone. How they scheme this game, how much they value protecting Josh Allen and protecting the running game with you know Josh Allen being their number one running back, how they use him in the passing game and the schematics, and how much that's going to differ from what we saw not just in the playoff game against the Chiefs, but against the Patriots because the Buffalo offense at the end of the regular season last year and the playoffs was like night and day between the two teams. And so I'm interested to see what kind of uh, middle ground Buffalo finds as they get to the regular season and games where, you know, the record's not 10 and two, but the record's not uh, obviously two and oh yet either. It's obviously zero zero at this point. So I'm I'm really interested to see how Buffalo's offense works in the first game of the season. And we'll answer this question on the post game show coming up on Friday. Just start. So, for, I guess, a main topic here today, on Wednesday morning, ESPN dropped a story by Brady Henderson, 
who is an NFL reporter for ESPN, as I mentioned a second ago. And they dropped this report about Russell Wilson and Pete Carroll and the Seattle Seahawks and everything that led up to Pete, Pete Carroll and John Schneider trading Russell Wilson, making very clear in their statement when they traded him that Russell wanted a trade and that they were abiding by that. And the fallout between the Seahawks and Russell Wilson where... Russell Wilson left and it felt like the Seahawks didn't have a a plan in, to replace Russell. They just kind of traded him and then kind of went from there. And this story was really interesting to me. And I want to read a good chunk of the story to you and just kind of do the analysis on it. Because there had always been factions of stories around Russell Wilson. And obviously in 2021, he had that famous radio show with Dan Patrick where he called out the offensive line and the front office. Then the trade teams were made public when the Seahawks were like posturing his value. Russell Wilson's agent went public with Adam Schefter and said, Russ doesn't want to trade, but if he is going to get traded, these are the only teams he would accept a trade to. And the Broncos weren't on the list. And then by the time 2022 rolled around, Broncos had the best offer. It was the team Russ wanted to play for. It was just a really weird situation. And so I was interested in that story because it does a great job in putting the timeline of events over the last like five years in Seattle together. And it does a great job of analyzing why Russell Wilson wanted to leave in the first place. And it also does a great job in in doing actual new reporting because whenever we talk about Russell Wilson and whenever we talk about the Seattle Seahawks, it's always built upon something that doesn't feel real. It's something that is, uh, the whole thing about Russell Wilson is that he is corporate Russell, the guy who wants to sell you Alaska Airlines and sell you Bose headphones and be the, the commercial spokesperson who people can sell at the NFL circles where uh, where the story picks up and where Brady starts talking about it is he's being named Walter Payton Man of the Year, which is the most like corporate award you can get. It's an award that people in the NFL who want that title and the NFL can plaster them across their across their league and say this is the community work. This is a a you know a golden child of the NFL doing work in the community and on the field and holding up all of the values that corporate NFL wants you to believe exist in their league so that we can go ahead and let sexual predators get traded and signed to record setting contracts at the same time while not compromising the business aspects of our league. And Russell Wilson was the face of a corporation. I've talked before about how disingenuous Russell Wilson is, and it's off-putting to me. He wants to put out an image that doesn't necessarily reflect any human being. It's the one that people want to believe exists in the star quarterback, but I think a lot of sports fans are kind of disillusioned at this point to that type of person. But it again, anything that comes out of Seattle usually is disingenuous. Combined with the fact that we've talked before about how Russell Wilson comes from a background where he was going to private schools and he talked about being the only biracial kid in his school because everyone else was white and then going to NC State and going to Wisconsin and then being, you know, quoted. I think it was Channing Crowder who called Russell Wilson a square and said Russell Wilson, all the stereotypes of black people who are from different backgrounds and maybe are more traditionally articulate. We talked about this with Joe Camo a few weeks ago, and and that's a much better way of talking about this nuanced 
conversation around Russell Wilson. And then to the football side of it, where this story is going to pick up doesn't acknowledge the parts of the story where the Legion of Boom, which was the greatest defense ever assembled, at least in my lifetime, and the Seahawks went to -to back-to-back Super Bowls with five Hall of Famers, or four Hall of Famers, and a couple of guys who are in the Hall of Very Good, like Michael Bennett, who won't be a Hall of Famer, but was a Pro Bowler every year. Cliff Averill got uh, inducted into the Seahawks' Ring of Honor. Obviously, Cam Chancellor's a Hall of Famer. Earl Thomas is a Hall of Famer. Richard Sherman, Bobby Wagner. They had four Hall of Famers on their defense and won a, and had a Hall of Fame running back in Marshawn Lynch. And Russell Wilson was just good enough to get them to the Super Bowl because he was a decent quarterback his first few years and then when Russell Wilson became the Hall of Fame quarterback Russell Wilson the entire Legion of Boom breaks apart and there's been a lot of like messed up stories with how the Legion of Boom has gone there's been a murder case in there Michael Bennett has had some public missteps like pushing the grandma in Vegas obviously there was that video that emerged last year of Richard Sherman trying to pound out like an embarrassing moment for Richard Sherman Earl Thomas became excommunicado from the NFL because nobody wanted him on his team like just the the Legion of Boom broke apart and when everyone went their separate ways it felt like everyone was just less happy and everyone was just not doing as well as they were when they were all together And Richard Sherman's been very public in calling out Russell Wilson and being like, you are the reason that we broke apart. You are the reason we didn't win more. They chose you. They gave you preferential treatment. Marshawn Lynch retired early and then unretired to go to uh, Oakland and then later Las Vegas. Like Seattle is, they gave, Pete Carroll gave preferential treatment to Russ. Russ was his guy. And they, they cleared out the entire organization to build around Russell Wilson and Bobby Wagner for six years. And during those six years, there was always this tension between Russell Wilson and Pete Carroll. And that's where this story picks up um, from Brady Henderson and ESPN. So I'm just going to kind of pick up from that. Like we've talked about the Legion of Boom, Russell Wilson's background, corporate Russell in the past. I find it to be so fascinating because the dynamics are unlike, they're unlike anything that exists within the NFL today. And also, it's a byproduct of being a front-facing job and the front, the face of a corporation and all kinds of stuff that apply to broader society and race and social class and, and uh, economic class. There's all sorts of interesting layers to this story. And so we pick it up after all of that. This is during 2017, 2018, 2019 is where they begin the story um, coming from here. And here's what Doug Baldwin said. Quote, the divorce was inevitable and was many years in the making. The reasons are multiple, but ultimately I think it comes down to a difference of pursuits. And Russell Wilson believes the organization was holding him back and the organization felt like Russell Wilson was getting older and a lesser player. And so it ended up being a difference of opinion. And now we pick up the story of how did we get there during those six years where they cleaned out the Legion of Boom and built a team around Hall of Famer Russell Wilson, who between 2017 and 2020, Russell Wilson was Hall of Fame great. Like the best quarterback maybe in the NFL during that four-year stretch, right before Patrick Mahomes takes over as the best player in the NFL, but in between when Aaron Rodgers was the best. Kind of like those two years that Drew Brees should have won MVP. Leading up to an October 2019 game at the Atlanta Falcons, 
Wilson's fast start had made him one of the prime early season contenders for MVP, an award he badly wanted to win. With Baltimore Ravens and eventual winning quarterback Lamar Jackson on a bye, this was Russ's chance to pull ahead. He threw two touchdowns as the Seahawks jumped out to a 24-0 halftime lead, but attempted only five passes in the second half. Afterwards, according to a source who spoke with the quarterback, Wilson was livid at how Carroll had taken his foot off the gas, believing it had cost him a chance to grab hold of the MVP race. Wilson would, fi- would find himself back in the early season MVP conversation a year later, in 2020. The Seahawks went into the 2020 campaign with the plan to lean more on Wilson's arm, much to the delight of the quarterback and fans who had backed the Let Russ Cook social media movement and catchphrase that Wilson would later trademark for charitable purposes. Quote, going into year nine, I'm trying to break away, Wilson said, mentioning four of the all-time greats whose company he wanted to join. Peyton Manning, Tom Brady, Drew Brees, Joe Montana. Quote, I want to be the best in the world to ever do this. With Carroll and offensive coordinator Brian Schottenheimer running the offense through Wilson more than ever during the Let Russ Cook early 2020 years, he tossed 19 touchdowns and three interceptions during a 5-0 start to claim undisputed status as the early MVP frontrunner. And a quick side note, during October of 2020 on this podcast, we did a podcast called the Second Place to Russell Wilson MVP Awards, which I believe Aaron Rodgers was mentioned in that and then ended up winning the actual MVP. We did a podcast, a full-ass podcast called the Second Place to Russell Wilson Awards Show because he was so good during the start of 2020. The fact Russell Wilson hasn't received a vote for MVP is partly a function of the balloting process, as each of the 50 voters make a single pick. It didn't help that he was operating one of the NFL's more run-heavy systems. Since his rookie season, the Seahawks have been 29th in designed pass play rate. They're 21st since 2015, when Wilson first signed his mega contract. Wilson led... Wilson's lead on winning his first MVP in 2020 quickly faded when the prolific stretch gave way to the worst turnover funk of his career. Russ committed 10 turnovers over the next four games, and with their defense faltering, the Seahawks went 1-3. One of Wilson's seven interceptions in that stretch came in a loss at the Los Angeles Rams in Week 10. Trailing by a touchdown, he scrambled to his right and had a massive swath of empty turf in front of him. He bypassed the rushing yards, uncorked a deep heave back across the field that was picked off in the end zone. Quote, what are we doing here? One source in the Seahawks front office remembers thinking at the time. Are we trying to win games or are we trying to win MVP? Pete Carroll had had enough of the turnovers. He pulled the plug on Let Russ Cook and reverted to the formula that was ingrained deep within the then 69-year-old coach. Quick side note away from the story, there's also reporting that was done by The Athletic that said Russell Wilson stormed out of a meeting that week when the game plan was brought up against Arizona, and he like left the facility altogether after uh, they talked about changing the game plan after the first 10 weeks. It's not reported in this story, but um, th- this has just been confirmed by The Athletic in the past. Quote, Early on this season, when we didn't have to run the ball much because we were rolling through, we were throwing the football, those guys were out there and we almost took it for granted, Carroll told reporters as he signaled the shift. I'm disappointed about that because the element of our football that makes us this style of team that we are, 
and it makes Rush's job different than it is when he has to throw the ball 40 or 50 times. He certainly can do it and loves doing it, and we don't mind him doing it, but our football is better shaped when we're balanced and we're attacking you, and we can play off of that. It fits the defense. It fits the special teams. It's the statement of the way we play. The Seahawks won their final four regular season games to take the NFC West, only to suffer another early playoff exit when John Walford and the Rams' defense overwhelmed them in a wildcard game. Russell Wilson threw a pick six, was sacked five times, and was pressured on half of his dropbacks. By the way, that pick six was really bad. It was like a screen pass pick six. Afterwards, Carroll lamented how Wilson didn't get the ball out quickly enough, and how Brian Schottenheimer's play calls didn't put Wilson in positions to make quick decisions. Carroll fired Schottenheimer after the season, citing philosophical differences. Two days later, the Seahawks set up a Zoom call with reporters at Wilson's request. He praised his ousted offensive coordinator and told reporters a point that he had already made to Carroll. He expected to have input in the hiring of his new offensive coordinator. And he did. The Seahawks hired Shane Waldron with a strong endorsement from Wilson, who liked his lineage from Rams coach Sean McVay and the experience with up-tempo styles. Waldron had spent the previous four seasons in an offense that was built around the run game and play action, and now he had a quarterback with arguably the best deep ball in the NFL. I'm going to pause here because they switch uh, the story up a little bit, and I kind of want to talk about what we just had there. Also, just as a note, during that Super Bowl year with uh, the Rams and Jared Goff in 2018, Shane Waldron was basically Jared Goff's babysitter during that season, as it was described in the report ESPN did between... Uh, the rift of Sean McVay and Jared Goff. It's kind of funny how that one ended up playing out, but uh, Shane Waldron's now the OC with the Seahawks. And it's interesting that that 2020 and 2019 season kind of went the way it did because it started to signal the disappointment between Russ. Because right after that is when he wins the Walter Payton Man of the Year after they lose the playoff game to the Rams. he win- They hire Shane Waldron and Russell Wilson goes on the famous Dan Patrick Um, interview where he basically calls out the offensive line and calls out the front office and then you know three weeks later there's talks about the possible trade and so it was interesting to kind of piece all of those stories together now we go back to 2017 and some of the in-depth stuff about the Seahawks deciding to move off of Russell Wilson now that we've talked about the rift between Wilson and how the Seahawks run their offense which is always well documented it's just putting it all together in one place is a great way to do the story Now we can talk about some of the juicy details to this story. Quote, In the spring of 2017, Seahawks general manager John Schneider was was a conspicuous attendant at Patrick Mahomes' pro day. The general manager had become so enamored with the Texas Tech quarterback that Seattle would have taken him had he been available late in the first round, multiple team sources said. The massive gamble on an unproven quarterback would have carried an obvious benefit flexibility to build the roster around a cheap rookie contract the way Seattle had done during Wilson's first three seasons when they won a Super Bowl and nearly won a second. A year after Mahomes, John Schneider attended Josh Allen's Wyoming Pro Day, a repeat move that raised eyebrows among observers and ruffled feathers inside Wilson's camp. Why would Schneider travel to far-flung campuses, being Lubbock, Texas, and uh, I forgot Wyoming, (laughs) just Wyoming and Lubbock, Texas, Why would Schneider travel to far-flung campuses to scout quarterbacks when he already had one building a Hall of Fame resume as a Super Bowl champion and perennial pro bowler? Wilson, 29 at the time, 
was coming off a season in which he led the NFL in touchdown passes, then a career high at 34. Schneider had an explanation. He was working in the Green Bay front office when Aaron Rodgers fell to them late in the first round. That experience, plus his, Carol's, his and Carroll's off-sided promise to leave no stone unturned in player eval, meant Schneider had to do his homework on quarterback prospects. Schneider's in-season schedule kept him from attending any of Mahomes or Allen's games, so the pro day was his chance to see them throw live. Russell Wilson's camp had a different view. Quote, They were fucking pissed, a Seahawks front office source said. Then came the clearest sign yet to Wilson's camp that Seattle's interest in other quarterbacks was something more than due diligence. The Seahawks, according to someone in Wilson's camp and the Seahawks front office, called the Cleveland Browns before the 2018 draft to discuss a trade that would have swapped Wilson for number one overall pick in the draft, which the Seahawks would have used to take Josh Allen. Wilson's agent, Mark Rogers, found this out. The Browns weren't interested, but Seattle's flirtation motivated Rodgers to secure a no-trade clause when he negotiated Russ's four-year, $140 million contract the following April. Unlike with Wilson's 2015 extension, talks among Rodgers, Schneider, and the Seahawks' Matt Thomas didn't drag into the summer, with Wilson and Rodgers setting an April 15th deadline for a deal. Without one, Wilson said he would play or Wilson's side said he would play the final season of his deal, go year-to-year on the franchise tag, then hit free agency, similar to how Kirk Cousins landed a record-setting contract with the Vikings. The no-trade clause put Wilson's deal over the finish line in the middle of the night. In exchange for the Seahawks preserving the right to use the franchise tag at the end of his extension, Wilson got protection in the event the team wanted to move on, and a measure of control if Wilson wanted out. Just as a quick side note before we go back to the story, the Russell Wilson Cleveland Brown thing was already out there in the past. I remember years ago making memes about it, but it had never really been confirmed by sources like ESPN doing it in a story, I don't believe, or at least this is the first time I've ever seen it confirmed by an outlet as high as ESPN that, uh, you know, the, the Seahawks had called seeing if they could do a Russell Wilson for Josh Allen swap during the 2018 draft process. After Wilson signed the four-year, $140 million extension that made him the highest-paid player in NFL history at the time, the Seahawks held a news conference at team headquarters. Dozens of teammates and Seahawks employees filled the seats inside the auditorium in what felt like a celebratory atmosphere. Russ donned a Seattle Supersonics jacket over his shirt and a tie while posing for pictures alongside his family. Then, with Carol and Schneider seated alongside him, Wilson told the crowd he wanted to be a Seahawk for life. The joyous moment bellied building tension. Between a run-heavy offense, Wilson's mounting sack total, Seattle's waning playoff success, the quarterback and those close to him began to believe the Seahawks weren't doing enough to help him get to his desired place among the game's all-time elite. For example, the 2017 season ended in disappointment when they didn't put the ball in Wilson's hands with their Week 17 game on the line, trusting struggling kicker Blair Walsh instead. Walsh missed what would have been the game-winning field goal from 48 yards out after conservative play calling necessitated the long attempt. Seahawks finished 9-7, and Wilson missed the playoffs for the first time in his career. When they were ousted in the wildcard round the following year, Mark Rogers called the team and voiced his objections to sticking with an ineffective run game, 
A year later, the season ended with a divisional round loss to the Packers that followed a similar script. The 2020 wildcard loss to the Rams made it six straight seasons in which the Seahawks failed to get back to the NFC Championship game since nearly repeating as champions in Super Bowl 49. I will also add that during that six-year stretch, the Seattle Seahawks won more regular season games than any team in NFL history that didn't make a conference championship. 55 wins in six years is a record for a team that never played in a single conference championship. According to sources both in Wilson's camp and with the Seahawks, Wilson asked Team Brass after the Rams' loss how they were going to address his biggest frustration, the offensive line. During Wilson's 10 seasons with the Seahawks, they ranked last by a wide margin in pressure rate, which meant the percentage of offensive dropbacks in which a quarterback is sacked, hit, or put under duress. They fared better in recent seasons in ESPN's pass-block win rate, which measures how often blocks are sustained for at least 2.5 seconds. Since ESPN began tracking this stat in 2017, Seattle has finished as high as 3rd and as low as 28th. With Seattle opting for value in free agency over big money additions, Wilson's camp believed the Seahawks were getting what they paid for, or didn't pay for, up front. The way the Seahawks saw it, the league-wide dearth of quality offensive linemen meant the best ones who hit free agency got vastly overpaid making them a luxury Seattle couldn't afford with Wilson's contract and those of their other stars taking up a huge chunk of their cap space. Over Wilson's first three seasons, while he was playing on his rookie contract, the Seahawks ranked between 4th and ninth in percentage of cap dollars spent on their offensive line. In the seven seasons since he signed his first mega deal in 2015, they've ranked in the top 20 once and were among the bottom five three times. Wilson, according to source close to him, didn't get a clear answer from the Seahawks on how they planned to improve the offensive line, prompting him to take his frustrations public after the Super Bowl. According to team and NFL sources, Wilson's comments angered Seattle's linemen, left tackle Dwayne Brown would later express as much to reporters, and the team brass. Carroll and Schneider were caught off guard, believing all was well after they had worked together to hire Shane Waldron. With the NFL world buzzing, the Seahawks made no public attempt to tamp down the story, insist instead letting Wilson sit with the firestorm he created. Side note, this was the same tactic the Arizona Cardinals took with Kyler Murray this last offseason. Schneider and Rodgers began discussing potential trade destinations and, according to sources on both sides, had a heated exchange about which teams would be in play. In late February 2021, hours after The Athletic published a story detailing the Wilson-Seahawks rift, Rodgers dropped an on-the-record bombshell when he told ESPN's Adam Schefter that while Wilson hadn't requested a trade, he'd waive his no-trade clause to play for Vegas, New Orleans, Dallas, and Chicago. While a trade never came to fruition, the message had been sent to the rest of the NFL. Wilson was open to playing elsewhere. And I'm going to pause here because the, we knew all of this back in 2021. We were doing podcasts back then. Remember when everyone was obsessed about the Watson, Rodgers, Wilson, three best quarterback, three of the eight best quarterbacks all being available in the same offseason? Well, it took Russell Wilson a year to get the trade. At the time, we didn't know that there was a fight between the Seahawks front office and with the um, agent about which teams would be in play. We knew the Seahawks were leaking Jets and Dolphins because at the time, Jets had the two pick in the draft, Dolphins had the three pick in the draft, and Russell Wilson didn't want to play for those teams. The Seahawks were just trying to posture for better value. And so as that ended up playing out, 
you had the, again the once all of it came to light with the story in the athletic you had a massive like unprecedented agent going public with trade destinations to clear the air and like checkmating the Seattle Seahawks a little bit and signifying like there was a bit of a problem between those teams now let's go back to the story and and continue from 2021 onward to the breakup between the Seahawks and Russell Wilson Pete Carroll though had no interest in letting him go their football differences aside, he had backed Wilson from the get-go, first making the bold decision to name him the starter as the third-round rookie in 2012 over Matt Flynn, then sticking by Wilson amid his early-season growing pains despite public pr- criticism Seattle was wasting a championship-caliber defense. As detailed in a 2017 ESPN the Magazine story by Seth Wickersham, Seahawks defenders grew resentful in later years over their belief Carroll gave Russell Wilson preferential treatment. And now, according to a front office source, Carroll was a staunch opponent to the idea of trading his franchise quarterback, believing he could manage the drama and Wilson's declining mobility. With final say over personnel decisions, Pete, Carroll, Pete Carroll's view was the one that mattered most. His stance would eventually soften. He's a great pro. He's a veteran. He shows up, leader, all that stuff, every single day, a Seahawks front office source said of Wilson and the resistance among some in the organization to trade him. So yeah, it took a while. End quote. Then, after the 2021 season, Wilson and Carroll discussed the possibility of a trade. That's when shit got real, a front office source said. By this point, some within the Seahawks believed Wilson's best days were behind him, Their concern wasn't with the finger injury that had sidelined him three games in 21. Some believe Wilson's escapability, one of the traits that made him an elite quarterback worthy of elite money, was waning. He's not as mobile as he used to be, said one source in the Seahawks front office. One notable play from last season that helped fuel that belief came in the Seahawks' Week 16 loss to the visiting Chicago Bears, which was a snow game. Leading by seven points midway through the fourth quarter, Wilson took a shotgun snap on third down and he had a clean pocket and no options that he liked. Wilson scrambled out the backside with his patented spin move, but there would be no magical escape. Robert Quinn dropped him for a 13-yard sack. The ensuing longer missed field goal and defensive collapse resulted in a loss that eliminated the Seahawks from playoff contention for the second time in Wilson's career. Carroll chided Wilson's decision, saying in his post-game news conference, We can't take a sack there. Russ saw things differently. I was trying to play ball like I know how to do and always do. The dueling explanations highlighted the disconnect between how Wilson wanted to play and how Carroll wanted to play. But the sack itself exemplified how, to some in the organization, Wilson was declining. Quote, I just felt like he's a descending player, another front office source said, citing the same mobility concerns. Is he going to be able to protect? Is he going to be able to be a true pocket passer at the end of his career and just stand there and drop the ball off to his checkdowns? He's never done that. I can't tell you he's going to be able to do it. Over the past 25 games, Wilson's 57.7 total QBR ranks 11th among qualified quarterbacks. He was 5th at 71.7 in his 25 games before that. In a polling of NFL executives, scouts, coaches, and players done by ESPN's Jeremy Fowler, Wilson ranked as the 8th best quarterback in 2022, down 4 spots from last year. 
By the way, that stupid-ass poll also had Lamar Jackson and Kyler Murray less than Russell Wilson. Quote, it's going to get more and more difficult for him to create and do what he's used to do. I don't think that's going to be harder. I, I'm sorry, I do think that's going to be harder, said former Seahawks quarterback Brock Heward, who co-hosts a radio show on Seattle Sports Station 7:10 a.m. during most of Russell Wilson's career. Quote, is that going to hit in 2022? Probably not. I think this will likely be one of the best years for the Broncos. Will he slow down in 23, 24, 25? Yes. Quote, the guys that have endured and changed the threshold and played into their 40s, Brady, Breeze, they played a different game than Russ plays. They played a game totally from the pocket and have done that the entirety of their career. That's not necessarily Russell's game. With Wilson's 2019 extension running through 2023, the Seahawks were a year away from another negotiation. They knew quarterback prices were set to skyrocket which they did with extensions for Aaron Rodgers, Kyler Murray, Deshaun Watson, and I guess soon to be Lamar Jackson. Quote, so those two things, a declining player and then what the ask was going to be next time, which would have been his third time, it's like, no, let's play really good defense. Let's run the shit out of the ball. That's how we won a world championship. That's how we've kept going back. That's what we've kept going back to, a source in the Seahawks front office said. Not everyone in the organization believed Wilson is declining. Two Seahawks coaches pointed to the same play from last season with a counterexample. During an October win at the San Francisco 49ers, Russ spun out of a would-be sack, scrambled to his right, and with his feet unset, threw a rope 30 yards in the air for a touchdown. The 4-5 speed, where he's scrambling and now he's running down the field for big chunks of yards, that might not come anymore, one Seahawks coach said. But the feel for pocket presence, he's always going to have that. I have no reservations in saying that Russ is going to continue to compete with his style and that, and then as that begins to slow down a bit, I think he'll adjust. That's just who he is. He finds a way to win. After shaking off the rust from his finger injury, Wilson led the NFL in total QBR over the last two games of the season. His eight combined touchdowns included a four-yard rushing score. By December, with the Seahawks headed towards their worst finish since 2009, Wilson's uncertain future was again a hot topic. On the Thursday before the Seahawks' home finale in Week 17, Wilson told reporters, I know for me personally, I hope it's not my last game, and at the same time, I know it won't be my last game in the NFL. I think he was trying to get across that it was very real possibility he would be gone at the end of the year, and not just indications of how he was feeling himself, but how the organization was as well. I think that both sides kind of knew at that point, not necessarily it was going to go down that path, but it was a very real possibility. Wilson had his best game of the season in January against the visiting Detroit Lions, tossing four touchdowns and looking like himself for the first time since his finger injury. He was the last player off the field, lingering well after the final whistle, flapped both his arms to the sky as he walked off, eliciting a roar from the fans who had stuck around and gathered near the exit in the home locker room. He stopped to sign a few autographs before disappearing into the tunnel. Some in the organization doubted it would be a last time, believing the 70-year-old Pete Carroll wouldn't want to part ways with Wilson and start a young quarterback. I always thought Pete was not going to be okay with it, a source from the Seahawks front office said. Quote, like it would be just tough for him, because Russ was Pete's guy for a long time. Obviously all the stuff that happened, Pete would always back Russ. That caused all the friction with the defense. So I just thought Pete would have a tough time doing it. 
but things change, end quote. The Seahawks received calls from the Broncos and several other teams, including the Saints, Giants, and Washington Commanders. Well, Washington racial slurs, as I like to call them. They knew Wilson wanted Denver, according to a front office source, but kept New Orleans involved in the bidding so the Broncos would have to compete against another offer. Schneider later apologized to the Saints and other teams who had called, having told them they weren't trading Wilson. Denver was Wilson's only option, and Schneider preferred, Schneider's preferred choice because, this one's funny, Drew Locke was the quarterback Schneider wanted in return. Schneider met with Broncos GM George Payton at the Senior Bowl in early February and again at the Scouting Combine in Indianapolis. At the Combine, Carroll told reporters in carefully chosen wording, the team had no intentions of trading Wilson. The deal was soon done. When the trade became official a week later, the Seahawks released a statement from Carol Schneider and de facto owner Jody Allen, all making clear how Wilson wanted out. Then in a news conference at team headquarters, Carol defended his since-scrutinized comment from the Combine and said, a better-than-expected offer from Denver turned the tide. Quote, I've said a million times to you guys that I've had no intention of moving on with the quarterback, Carol said. I love Russ and love him in the program. That's the way I was committed to doing it, and I felt that way all the way throughout. The opportunity became available. To me, it's not about blaming anyone or forcing the issue in any way in particular. Everybody had to agree to this eventually, and we did. End quote. On Thursday, the Broncos committed to Wilson with a five-year, $245 million extension that includes $165 million in guaranteed money. To be able to get this done before the season, it's just a blessing, Wilson said at his news conference following the extension, and it allows us all to be excited. It's so important to me. To me, what it's about is to be able to win championships and have enough space on the salary cap so George Payton can work his magic, and we can get guys like Randy Gregory and other great players. We want to make this a destination location, end quote, a place for Russell Wilson to build his legacy. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.